today. This is C.B. Bowman Live. And today we are really fortunate to have Liz Gutridge on, and she is an executive coach, a master level corporate executive coach with the Association of Corporate Executive Coaches. And I'm gonna ask her to introduce herself and we're gonna have a great discussion today. So I'm so glad you joined us. Thank you for having me. (laughs) My pleasure. So Liz, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know your screen is a little dark. Yes, and it's because we are having the, I'm in Charleston, South Carolina, which is where I now live. We are having very strong winds related to the hurricane that hit New Orleans, but spared my family in Louisiana, luckily. And we have construction going on on two sides. So, yes, so I have all the lights on and it's still pretty, pretty dark outside. So I think we'll just have to, and I'm focused around here. So my background or what I do. So I, as CB, as you said, I'm an executive coach. I also facilitate and I also consult. And my areas of interest are my, really my sweet spot for coaching is with individuals who are new in an organization, new in a role, and new in a geography. So triple problems potentially, but also triple possibilities. Uh And um, I've got a background in applied neuroscience, behavior design, and lean communications. Oh my God, Liz. All right, so I'm getting stressed just talking to you now with all this knowledge. (laughs) And you're also a parliamentarian? Yes, which I actually don't talk about that much but CB, you seem to be very interested in it. And certainly this is the time to be um, a parliamentarian from the standpoint of, I do work with a lot, still with a lot of organizations. I got involved in this back when I was in high school, believe it or not, as one of my three streams to get the hell out of Dodge. And <laughs> I've continued with it all these years later, working with organizations that I really like and respect. And, um, but, so I probably know too much about elections. So all of this about the absentee ballots is driving me crazy. Okay, we're not gonna go to politics because that's a whole nother show. (laughs) Yes, however, it's certainly an issue. This is my first, well, second major election living in the deep South. And you really starting to see the effects of voter suppression over the years. Wow. Okay. Well, as I said, that's another show. Um, But you also have a journalist background? Yes. Um, So that was one of those, the second um, stream I followed to get the hell out of Dodge. And I started my junior high newspaper and was very active and then went to journalism school. And at the time, I really wanted to be an investigative reporter. And then I got a taste of teaching newspaper. It was a great program. I was embedded in a newspaper in Huntington, West Virginia, but discovered I really did not care for small town living. I really preferred being in an urban area. And um, I really was too opinionated to be a, a journalist. So I segued into corporate communications. Oh How my I, God, and that, that, that gave you more freedom? Yes. Well, I would say more freedom, but certainly from a standpoint of, I could certainly in meetings, let my opinions be known. Um, But what was interesting, which I really didn't realize until just a few years ago, how 
learning the art of questioning, which I did as a journalist, has really helped me as a coach. Mm -hmm. Well, today, I want to be transparent to the audience in that you are part of my new organization, Workplace Racial Equality, and I'm so happy to have you part of it. And um, your area of expertise is helping us develop the certification for it. So how did you come upon this kind of knowledge? So the, well, actually, I mean, certification is not my area of specialty. I tend to know people who know a lot about certification. Certainly I have certifications myself, but it's it's not an area. I mean, where I really um, tend to shine more is doing a lot of problem solving. So working with organizations and people to really figure out what is the problem we're trying to solve and then figure out the best way to get people to solve it. Okay, so great. So our certification credentialing represents a jigsaw puzzle to you. And, oh, this is good. <laughs> when, when I was um, coaching one of my clients many years ago, uh, which was the American Red Cross, and it was about a year after 9-11, and my client said to me, CB, I figured you out. And I said, oh, tell me, because I haven't been able to figure me out. And he said, you see the world as a jigsaw puzzle, and you like putting together the pieces. And that was such a perfect description of me. And it's that understanding of me has kept me out of trouble. <laughs> so tell us, you've seen a lot, you've heard a lot, uh, you've been through a lot with regarding social justice. And in particular, our focus is on workplace racial equality. Tell us, what are your thoughts about what's going on? Is there an opportunity for us to get on the plus side of this equation? What are you seeing? Well, certainly I hope it's the plus side of the equation because I think for the first time probably ever, it is on the minds of people. So certainly what has happened in 2020 has made people more aware because I think a lot of people it's just not been in their realm of experiences. They just have not had exposure to it. And so if you, especially if you're a white person who has not worked with a lot of people of color or had a lot of ex different experiences or lived in many places, you're gonna have a fairly limited view of what's happening. And even someone like me who's lived all over the, this country, six years ago when we moved to the deep south has been a real awakening for me to see see the differences. What do you see are the major differences? Well, certainly from a standpoint of in a town like this, which is not, it is more um, tourism and healthcare and certainly aerospace has been growing. But as I talk to people who've lived here a long time, the middle class has basically been hollowed, hollowed out. So for example, a lot of the large employers who had presence here, the AT&Ts, some of the power companies, some of the um, utility companies have become part of larger organizations. And so the jobs that were in Charleston for middle managers, a lot of them have just evaporated. Hmm. So we tend to have a lot of very senior positions with smaller companies or entry level and not that many uh, middle manager roles. 
So uh, do you see that the place for, and I don't think you're saying this, the place for Black Americans is middle management? I mean, how are you say, seeing that that affects uh, workplace racial equality? What I'm saying is that in a, some of these smaller markets, one of my concerns is that if you don't have an active pipeline to bring people of color into the organization, they're not going to get in. And so they're not going to be able to move up. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just astounds me to be, and of course, you know, certainly we've, the past nine months we've been dealing with COVID, but to be in some, we have a number of colleges here. We've got a number of, of um, business groups and you go and pretty much everybody is white mm. in a state that has a fairly high percentage of African-American citizens. So, so how do we solve this? So you're saying that the large percentage of black Americans there are not going to university? They're going to, well, um, some of them are, but not in the numbers that I would hope for in 2020. To make a difference. And, right. And certainly from a standpoint of, I mean, I live in a predominantly African-American community. My dog is a therapy dog and we visit a predominantly African-American middle school where he participates in a pause to read program. And isn't that cute? I love that. Tell us about that. So, but what's interesting is that there's probably, you know, 10% of the teachers who are African-American, it's predominantly white teachers. So from a standpoint, and again, this is 2020, and you really want to make sure that you've got diversity everywhere because we all know the, the, the value of diversity. And we also want to show kids that role models, that they can grow up and, and be teachers, they can be firemen, they can be um, policemen, and they can be as well as business people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to go back a second, pause to read, because yes. you know I am a dog lover. What is that about? So the research has shown that kids reading to dogs improves their reading ability. What? Because the, dog, <laughs> the dogs are not judgmental. Ah. So the kids read to the dogs. The dogs aren't going to correct anything, whatever. They just listen. They're very attentive. And just 20 minutes at a time can really make a huge difference in kids' ability to read. How incredible. Where did this research come from? So um, I forget who's been doing, but the programs are in, you know, like so many things in this country, they're very local. And so when we lived in California, we participated in a program. It had a different name, but it was the same thing. You would either go to the schools or go to the libraries and hear both of them, both of them support that. I love it. I'm going to get my little one involved in yeah. that. And we had actually started a neighborhood pause to read, or we were calling it, oh, reading, reading with the dogs, a play, a play on dancing with the, with the stars. <laughs> and we've had to, to furlough 
everybody until things get better with uh, the virus. Yeah, how can you translate that to uh, Zoom or an online platform? So, well, actually we are having, Marcel, my therapy dog, is doing online visits, <laughs> which I have to say is not the same thing for him because he, he likes getting getting pets and everything. Um, but it still is better better than nothing for, and it's also, it's with what I'm finding really interesting, the group that's doing it together pets has expanded the definition of what's going to be a therapy animal. So Marcel and I are on calls with um, birds, with geese. No, with no, no. Miniature horses. <laughs> so he finds that pretty interesting. So now does he pay attention to the screen? Because whenever I lift up London and show him on the screen, he's looking all over. He's not looking at the screen. Not as much as he used to. He's gotten really blasé about it. When I first started to do Zoom calls a couple of years ago, he was very intrigued. And now it's just another thing. So, but if, if it's different animals, he tends to, to pay yeah. attention. Yeah, London does also. If he sees another dog, he's like glued to the set. And I thought, well, that's like people, you know, yeah, we're yeah. glued to the set where we see people. So we will generally do the, with the, the Zoom or, um, or also Microsoft Teams for therapy pet visits, we'll generally do five um, dogs or animals at a time, and then we'll just uh, rotate through. So he'll, he will get to see a few. So, you know, I hadn't planned to talk about this today, but you know, it's a great subject and nothing on CB Live is planned. <laughs> Tell us how does, so the person is reading to the dog. How, how does the person get input on their reading ability. So for, for example, if they pronounce a word wrong, how does that, yeah? Yeah, right. So, but it's different coming from the pet handler as opposed to an authority figure because okay. we're just kind of viewed in the background. I mean, I'm like, I'm Marcel's chaperone. So if I say something quietly, it's like, okay, you know, Marcel's person is speaking up. I see. I love this. You know, I'm dyslexic. I'm highly dyslexic. And I would have loved this I mean, to help me read better. My dyslexia affects me when I'm tired and mm -hmm. when I'm stressed and just sometimes at weird times. And my reading, when I'm reading to myself, I'm like, but if I'm reading out loud, I stumble. And so I would love to be able to get London involved in this program because his mom <laughs> has some disabilities. So well, it's just a great program because a lot of, you know, the, a lot of times the kids don't have dogs at home because somebody's allergic or they've been moving too much or whatever. And so this is a chance for them to just spend some fun time. Um, and some of the teachers almost use it as a reward. So the kids who've been good in, in class can go first to, to read to the to the dogs. And generally they'll choose the book that they want to read. Sometimes I'll bring books that um, I think will interest them. And um, sometimes they'll take turns reading. I'm seeing this as a massive opportunity in the black culture because uh, the children don't always have the opportunity to expand their reading abilities. 
you know, into science, history, you know, the, they'll probably get the basics in school if they're able to go to school on a regular basis. Now with COVID-19, uh, I imagine that the children are not going to school like they used to. This affects the meals that they're getting, which affects their attention span, which affects the reading. Right, right. Yeah, it is a huge, huge issue. Now the schools around here, and I think other parts of the country, are really making an effort to provide the school lunches as well as breakfasts and sometimes even afternoon snacks. So that some of the schools we walk around, I can just see the production lines, you know, from in, through the windows doing that. And um, because it's really, really important because as we know that if you, if you can't get enough food, you can't think very well. Right, right. And so, then also to the idea of, the, of, of having, having the reading. And we've also, um, last April, we put in a little free library at our house. And so I try to keep a variety of children's books as well as adult fiction for people. I saw on Facebook, I think it was, this woman who turned her garage into a library uh, and the children were helping her and they, they keep socially distant space to come in and put the books in place. And you know, every the children wear a mask to come in and select the book. And I thought, if I could get my garage cleaned out, <laughs> that would be an awesome thing to do. So how would this, how could people get involved in this program and how could we have more of this in the black uh, neighborhoods where children are craving additional learning opportunities? So it's very much, I think, grass, grassroots. And I think that, I mean, certainly right now, we're kind of at a standstill because it's it's trying to find space where everybody can social distance well enough mm -hmm. um, can be challenging. But it's it's interesting because I'm finding that certainly with I was able really quickly to get ten people with dogs who and where all of us are certified through one of the um, um, dog therapy programs. Um, primarily Alliance for Therapy Dogs, who would want to do this because, and all of us are working, It's but it's just, it's really fun to be able to volunteer with your dog and feel like you're helping people. And also to see see how people react to your dog and the joy that they get. So this and is Alliance for Therapy. For therapy dogs, yeah. Because what's great about, back to you know, your, your question to me about the certification, the credentialing is, if you are affiliated with a program like that with your dog, that is the indicator to the, the schools, the libraries, whatever, that your dog and you have passed a certain level of, you know, the, the dog is, is well behaved, the dog is not going to attack anybody, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the organization, the Alliance for Therapy Dogs, in our case, has insurance in case anything were to happen, which also gives peace of mind to these organizations. And so they will um, want to make sure that you're um, affiliated with something like that before you you bring you bring the dogs. And um, what's what was just as kind of an aside was funny was so we're getting ready to renew Marcel's certification and. Once he passed his obedience test initially, he's golden. 
I'm the one, though, who has to take the test every year when they change the rules. They, they do a lot around social media because they don't want you taking pictures of people and posting and all that. And they, they'll do a few other things. So I have to be on top of my game to make sure I can pass the test. So he's going to be qualified <laughs> to um, visit the hospital. First, visit I'll ask you questions <laughs> to prepare okay. you for the test. That is absolutely hysterical. I yeah. love it. <laughs> Right, right. Well, I see an opportunity here for the Alliance to uh, allow us to do this on Zoom. And I think it's an opportunity for them to get an even larger pool to select from. So I will definitely reach out to them and see if my little one can participate. <laughs> right, right. And what, the other thing, too, that I think is so wonderful, because I mean, Marcel, before he was furloughed, we would go to the hospital generally once or twice a week, which is a fairly big, big commitment. And then also de-stressing students at the colleges and all of that. However, I was gonna make the point at the hospital, the dogs are such a way to bring people together. Mm. So in terms of you, you know, all of a sudden you'd find people wanting of all ilks talking to one another because they would have in, in common the dog. Interesting. Interesting. You know, it, it makes you stop and think it's too bad that the dogs can't lead us out of uh, rage and, uh, and into inclusion and diversity. Oh, so, very much so, CB. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that unconditional love is, is what I think about, right? You know, I had an interesting question the other day from one of the other members in ACEC whose uh, client came to them and said, do you know of any assessment that measures equality and um, what was the other word that was used? Well, let's start with equality. Uh, in the DNI space. Equity was the other word. So let's let's talk about the difference between equity and inequality from your viewpoint. Yeah, so equality is this idea that we all are equal. Equity to me is more of making sure that we have opportunities that are appropriate or that probably is not the right word, but opportunities that are worthwhile and interesting and useful to us. Mm -hmm. And I think measuring, assessing this to me is challenging because it's got to be more a little bit of, of how you think about things, but even more so how you behave around things. And I think sometimes this trying to do self-reporting is going to be challenging because again, you may have blind spots that you yourself just don't see. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes what can be more of, of interest is a 360 where people can comment on you, whether or not they has in, see you in action of exhibiting a sense of, of being fair, equal, providing opportunities and all of that. So for our audience, uh, we have some people who are not in the coaching space online. What is a 360? 
<clears throat> so the 360 is this idea that you're going to have people you work with, uh, both uh, peers, direct reports, and people above you who will take a assess, I'm mean, not an assessment, we'll, we'll just answer some questions about how they perceive you. Mm -hmm. And so generally, and you will want probably at least, I mean, ideally, um, if double digits um, to get a good variety of comments. And, and how is that valuable to a person in an organization? So it's really valuable because the way we see ourselves is not the way others see us. And so that perception mismatch can really cause a lot of challenges. I mean, I'm dealing right now with, with two coaching two executives whose self-opinion of themselves is very different than how people see them. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's the 360s have been very helpful for them to say, okay, this is how others perceive me. I think I know who I am, but I'm, and I still want to be my authentic self. However, I need to adjust my behavior in certain manners to make sure that I'm going to um, work well with others. So let me ask you a question, since this is about workplace racial equality, do you see the benefit, a benefit or multiple benefits in people taking a 360 in relationship to their perception of social justice in the workplace? I, I think, it, I mean, it probably can help. My concern about some of this is this idea that still people wanting to hide behind tests and keeping waiting to do something when I'm a bigger proponent of having people have conversations and really trying to get to understand other people's experiences and points of view and doing that in a very um, what's the a word I want? Um, understanding manner and recognizing it's okay to be uncomfortable having uncomfortable conversations. So we hear this term a lot, uncomfortable conversations. And you and I have both coached in this space. But can you talk to our audience about what does that look like? What kinds of questions would be uncomfortable? And how can we, how can the person who's receiving those questions hold it in a space that does not upset them? Yeah. So it, it and I'm going to give you the consultant answer. It really varies. And I think what is important is to have some ground rules on and let each group kind of figure out what's best for that and and be able to discuss that and also trying to have i mean again i keep coming i feel awful because i generally not like to do this but it, it's back to it's challenging right now in a time of covid because oftentimes it's easier to come to have these conversations over a meal oh because you're more relaxed, because you're more relaxed. Mm -hmm. Everybody's got to eat. 
And especially if you're offering a variety of, of foods, some of which are going to be new to people, others not. So it's a way that you're all experimenting together. Also, drinking sometimes, I mean, a glass of wine or a bottle of beer can also relax people. And that can, that can help a lot. Um, and it's also, but having these conversations to say, okay, can you describe, you know, what it was like growing up? Or can you describe some of the things, experiences that you've had? And also the, sometimes the smaller the group, the better can really be helpful because I think a lot of, of folks have not had much, back to my point, have not had a lot of exposure to different things in terms of how people have, have lived their lives. And being hearing this directly from people is, is, is valuable. So what is it about the question of, tell me about your experience growing up that makes people feel uncomfortable? Why is it a difficult conversation question? Well, I don't think that one is difficult. I think oh. that one is, yeah. And I think some of this is, I mean, some of the questions, I mean, people, let me back up. People are just not used to having conversations about these things. About and anything. It's a lot of it. Yeah. Right. And a lot of times people will, will start going to things like, you know, can I touch your hair? I mean, that's like, that's kind of odd. However, it can be like, um, what, for example, when I moved here, I had no clue about the um, what are they the, the, the school, the pipeline to the the prison situation, where a lot of times school guidance counselors, rather than call um, the principal, will often call the police. So you've got a lot of kids will be getting mostly African American kids who will start to be getting a record in junior high and high school for um, incidences that white kids would never be called on. Give us, and, an, give, us hmm. an, give us an example. So for example, if I am um, a kid who talks back to a teacher and the teacher gets upset, um, the teacher for, for me as a white kid, probably would just um, tell the principal or call my parent. For a black kid, it's very feasible that they're gonna call the police. Really? Yeah. Wow. And so at a very young age, kids start getting a record. Mm -hmm. And that really puts them at a disadvantage going forward. I went, for example, Shortly after I got here, I went to my first ACLU meeting, of which I've been a, a member for years. Tell people and they were just tell, tell our listeners what that is, please. Oh, um, what does even the ACLU stand for? Um, American Civil Liberties Union. And so, again, an organization that protects people's rights. And they were talking about this prison, school to prison pipeline. And I was horrified and I came home and I immediately called my father and I said, oh my gosh, if this had existed in Oklahoma when you grew up and I grew up, we'd have a really long record because both of us can be very um, mouthy um, at times. So <laughs> I'm laughing with you because I remember, and I wanna come back to what you're saying, 
when I was a kid and I answered my teacher back, she called my mom. My mom said to me, what? When I'm not with you and you're in school, your teacher takes my place. And I know you would never answer me back. And I got punished so bad for that. And then, well, punished, I got spanked for it. And then my mother came to school and in front of my classmates, made me apologize to the teacher. Oh. And I had to sit in the corner and my mother approved it. I never spoke back to a teacher again. So the fact that, I mean, my mother was probably stronger than the police <laughs> at that point. So it amazes me now I'm hearing this because in my day, you called the parents. Right, and sometimes those parents aren't available, or they're at work or whatever, or the, the child is living with the grandparents, the grandparents aren't available. I mean, it's so making a it's hard to make assumptions about people's home life. Wow. Yeah. And so when you called your father, what did they say? What did he say? He, oh, he's like, oh my gosh, yes, I would have been. <laughs> definitely have a police record by the time by the time I'm 12. <laughs> fascinating, fascinating. So, okay, so let's go back to this, the whole concept of what we're talking about in terms of protecting children, the whole notion of what's going on today, the, the whole concept of growing up as a black person and protecting yourself and being recognized for the values you bring. Yeah. And so one of the things I've been working on, I've, I've got a extreme interest in habits and I've done a lot of training in that and teaching in that. And so one of the things I'm testing right now with the group of, of people is how, and back to the workplace, how do you help people provide their own psychological safety in order to speak up? And when they observe something that makes them uncomfortable or, um, you know, somebody is makes a, um, a remark that seems out of place and all that. Because when you feel social pain, it's really the same thing as physical pain. And it's sometimes it's worse because social pain can last with you a lot longer than physical pain. And one of the ways we're doing this is, I mean, basically three things can get in the way of... Um, you speaking up. The situation looks incredibly ambiguous. You feel social threats and you feel a power imbalance. And so generally what I'm noticing with the African-American young women who I've got participating in my habit study is they do not see these situations as ambiguous. They see them as somebody is um, saying something that's very hurtful they may, the person who's saying it may not realize it because they're just oblivious. They've not had any of this um, training or exposure or things like that. However, because of social, feeling social threat and power imbalance, they're hesitant to speak up. Okay, so let, let's tie this back into the unpleasant questions, which I took you off telling you, uh, discussing my childhood. Um, 
So the unpleasant question, the, the one that you said is very curious about, can I touch your hair? All right. So are we connecting that with, in terms of habits, are we connecting something like that with, it's unpleasant questions, different, difficult answers, and social pain? Yeah, there, there's, there's a linkage there, I believe. What on the, the difficult questions issue, the uncomfortable questions, I mean, that's really going to vary person by person. And so one of the a really good technique for people to use is to say, can I ask you a question? And generally, anytime I've used that or I've talked to other people who've used that, people will say, sure, you can ask me a question. And then if it's a question that you think is going to be uncomfortable for somebody, you can say, okay, if you don't like this question, you don't have to answer it. However, I'm curious. And the curiosity piece is really, really valuable because that opens people up and people are much more inclined to respond to somebody being curious as opposed to somebody making a statement that, um, you know, you people are all such and such or, or something else that would be considered very, very derogatory or very condescending or very, very mean. You, you know, you, you're bringing up a great point because it's a technique we use in coaching a lot, which is, can I ask you a question? Or can I ask you a personal question? Or can I ask you a question because I'm curious? Um, it sort of lays the foundation for it to be a teaching learning moment, right? Exactly, exactly. And then another technique that I, I like to use on the, on the questions is, can I ask you a question on the scale of one to 10 with one being low, 10 being high, how much does this issue affect you or does this issue bother you or how uncomfortable are you right now? And what's valuable about a rating question like that from one to 10, one low, 10 high, it gives the in you and the individual you're asking the question of an opportunity to pause and to reflect and to get yourself both on the same page. And so it's really helpful because again, we oftentimes will make assumptions about people and our assumptions are gonna be off base. And if, but if I say to you, okay, is the, on a scale of one to 10, how important is this issue to you? And they tell me it's a three. It's like, okay, are we really, should we really spend any time on this? No, or maybe this is just a no brainer. We'll ask a few questions and we'll move on. But it's something that's really critical to them. I know that I wanna tread more carefully because this could be um, a something that, that's, that's top of mind for them that concerned about and get wanting to get them to talk more about it. So thank you so much because I'm doing a panel next week. Uh, I think it's next week uh, with the finance community and asking about what the, the entire discussion is about planning for the what if scenarios. And uh, I have lots of questions because these are chief financial officers. So I, I must remember now to say, I'm curious <laughs> so that nobody feels uncomfortable. And I would normally only think about that in a coaching space, but uh, it, it seems like it would work great for being a moderator on a um, panel of this. Yeah, one of the women I'm coaching recently said that 
it was incredibly helpful for her because she was on getting her very first massage since COVID um, last week. And her masseuse, who she's known for years, started ranting about some um, issue in, in um, the um, blogosphere. And my coachee was able to start asking her questions and got her to realize her, her arguments were circular and, and she was able to <laughs> shut her up and enjoy a, a massage. So, so now the question becomes in the workplace, we now have laws that protect us against racism. Uh, we have restrictions on what we could ask in relationship to health. Uh, and so I'm seeing a need for people to connect with other people. And yet the laws are saying they're putting the brakes on a lot of conversations that would otherwise connect people together. How, how do we, I don't want to say get around the law, but that's really what I'm asking. How do we connect better with all of these legal restrictions in front of us? Well, I mean, I'm no lawyer, but I mean, a lot of the little legal restrictions are around questions we ask during the hiring process, and they're there for a very good reason. In terms for getting people to understand one another better, we have a lot of latitude. And I think there is to operate with maybe um, with civility mm -hmm. and give people benefit of the doubt in terms of, and I mean, even from the standpoint, as much as I love questions, I recognize that I don't want to be an interrogator. I want to have a conversation. And I also want to make sure that I'm listening. Because one of the things that people will often do in conversations is look for a spot to start presenting their point of view, rather than continuing to hear out the individual. And um, and then the other thing is to, as we were talking a little bit earlier, is just to create space for conversations. Okay. And that's where, where reflective things are good. Like, you know, if you were to do this again, what would you do differently? How are you going to approach this customer? And getting a sense of how people really start thinking about these things and feeling about them. Okay, what were you going to say? I didn't want to cut you off there. No, no, you're good. Um, because my mind is firing all kinds of questions. I want to go back to your idea of and your studies on on habit the idea of creating your own psychological safe space that fascinates me in terms of how to do that the other thing i want to talk about is how there has not been a recognition up until now uh, that coaching somebody of color is going mentoring somebody of color is going to be a different process than mentoring somebody who's not of color. And how do the two forces meet together and create this psychological safe space? What, what's keeping it apart from true mentoring and how to bring it together? Two important questions. Yeah. So pick which yeah. one? So first. I think I mean mentoring is a great idea. A lot of mentors I've met over the years and also talking to their mentees are mentoring as a way like following my footsteps ah. and that's not appropriate 
because we're all unique individuals and mentors need to really open up their minds about how can I work with this one individual to help them where they're at and where they want to go. And that may not necessarily be what I've done. So that's, a, I mean, a whole nother issue. So I think um, if I were starting my career again, I would want coaches as opposed to mentors. Touch us about the difference. Because coaches are trained to work with you as an individual. On your and own ground. Yeah. And how to, how to help you become the best person you want to be, the best version of yourself, maybe is a better way to put it. And to think about what you want to do. Mentors are there to kind of, kind of guide you through um, a situation, yet they a lot of the ones that I've spoken with as well and observed as well as talked to mentees tend to want you to follow in their footsteps. And I've seen a lot of this. I currently coach MBA students who have both mentors and mentees. And um, a lot over the years, the, the students come to me and say, like, my mentor wants me to do this, but that doesn't really fit what I want to do. Should I follow? And I'm like, okay, tell me why um, you're interested in following something you don't want to do. I go, okay, thank you. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. I, I think the best advice I, well, when I was in a situation at a Fortune 500 company, um, I went to somebody who I really didn't like, but was incredibly successful. And I said to this person, what's the best advice you could give me? And it took a lot because I really, I had heard horrible things about this person. And yet she was a woman that was incredibly successful in a man's universe. And she looked at me and she said, the time to rise is during chaos. And I thought, what the hell does that mean? But you know something? I never forgot it. Yeah, yeah. Now see, that is very good advice. Oh, excuse me, I think the advantage of mentors is often they are still embedded and working in organizations. A lot of us coaches are outside, so we're not in the day-to-day -day fray. And so you can learn a lot from mentors. I think the questions you, as a mentee that you need to ask are different would be like, you know, who, where are the, the bodies buried? Yes. In a situation favorite. in terms, yeah, in terms of that, or if I'm going to approach so-and-so, what do you know about this individual or what, you know, things like that yes. so that you can get a better sense. And I, obviously it helps to ask multiple people so you can get confirmation. Mm -hmm. um, but again, not to sense a sense that you're going to follow in the footsteps. Exactly. Of somebody. And I think, I think it's really difficult for blacks or people of color, your choice, to find mentors who really understand the need. For example, 
one of the great needs that is done, I think kind of automatically with white mentees is talking about them positively in spaces where they can't speak, right? Putting them in situations where they can't always reach. And conversely, for the mentee to realize this is good stuff, not I'm being penalized. And so it takes both sides of it to create this really positive workplace racial equality. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And yeah, I want to talk to you. Let's go back. Again, I keep saying let's go back because you're bringing out such incredible information to this notion of creating your own psychological safe space. And we only have a few minutes left. Time just went boom. Yes. How do you do that? So I'm starting off by a foundational habit, which is helping people practice a daily act of kindness, both to themselves and to others. And using that as the foundation to build on because it, providing a daily act of kindness helps you be a more empathetic person to yourself and to others. And that empathy will help you stay um, grounded. You know, I have to tell you, I have a colleague who's just publishing a book, Howard Prager, on what did you do to present kindness to somebody else? And that's not the exact words, I don't want to give it away, to somebody else today. And so you're saying that act helps you create a safe space for yourself? So you build on it. So then you start saying, okay, a lot of daily observation questions because you want to start observing and then thinking then you start working up the ladder of then how do you deal with ambiguity how do you do deal with social threats and how do you deal with the power imbalance and the power imbalance is one of the hardest things to deal with but oftentimes if you are more aware of it and you can decide to meet with the individual one-on-one -on -one, again to, to ask be curious and ask questions and figure out what to do so again helping that individual that person with power save face and not make them uncomfortable in front of others and in terms of the um social threats is starting to, to build confidence in yourself to think about what is the worst thing that could happen if I say nothing or say something, and what is the best thing that can happen? And looking at, are these things that are, that are worth speaking about? And can I find somebody to partner with me? Then it's gonna be some safety safety in numbers. And then the ambiguous, being ambiguous is a lot of the clarifying questions come into play. Because that's one of the trickier things. Because again, what can be ambiguous to me may not be ambiguous to you and vice versa. Liz, are you writing a book on this? I am actually writing a book with a couple of colleagues on the communication habit of which a lot of these things are part of. Yes, we've just started. I can't wait because this, I hope you do a separate white paper on this because I really think that we need to have another show and talk about this more in depth because it could be a protection bubble for African-Americans. Oh, sorry. I meant to say Black Americans on purpose um, 
to provide this safe space for themselves to be able to push our cause forward. And I also think it's very helpful for allies to start understanding that by, I think one of the, the to me, the most remarkable things that's come out like the past um, more like 18 months, because it was part of the Edelman trust thing, is staying silent about these issues is being complicit. Absolutely. Absolutely. But yet it is very easy to stay silent if you don't see it or if you're uncomfortable. Absolutely. And so the more we can encourage people, if you see something, say something, or even ask something, if you're more comfortable doing that. Do something. Yes, but by stay, by being silent, you're just encouraging this continuation of bad behavior. You know, this is so important for people in the C-suite to know because I'm coaching people in the C-suite, CEOs, and they come to me and they say to me, I thought if I didn't engage, it would go away. It doesn't go away. It makes the perception of you stronger in the negative zone because of media today. So yeah. you have a choice. You can use media to present your positive intent and then act on it, or you can ignore media and ignore positive intent and the consequences will be grave. Mm -hmm. And and we're not talking about physical consequences in terms of uh, rage. We're talking about mental consequences. Well, mental consequences too. Exactly. I mean, you you really are hurting people's ability to want to participate. And I think also to what CEOs and other people at the high organizations need to realize, high realize is that if you have an environment that is not welcoming, not inclusive, you're not going to draw the best talent. Nobody's going to want to come to work for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny how times have shifted because we went from an abundance in workforce to a lean workforce because everybody started cutting. And now I like to call it a choice workforce because we don't have enough people to man the stations and people are making conscious decisions about the values of an organization. Values of an organization is not something we previously thought about. We thought about the values of individuals or people running the organization. Were they trustworthy? How did they see different uh, social um, issues? Now we link it to the organization itself as a total globe. Mm -hmm. Is this an organization that I want to put on their coat and be recognized for? No. No, I don't want to be, I don't want my name, I don't want my resume linked with this organization. Now that's some heavy duty stuff. Employees now have the reins. And with that, I'm going to say goodbye to our audience and invite them to come back next Thursday to hear more 
amazing conversation with people who are making a difference in the workplace and outside of the workplace in relationship to social justice. And also join me on Tuesdays for challenges of the C-suite. This is C.B. Bowman Live and our guest, Liz, who's left you with some thinking to do. Liz, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much, C.B. We'll see you around the bend, as they say. <laughs>